for me, generally speaking, that a lot of neurodiversity is just the marriage for me of the, my personal experience and also my professional experience as someone who just wants to help other people understand how to navigate the legal system and for the legal industry to be more accommodating, equitable, and accepting and inclusive for that matter. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end talent management solution for the legal industry, and we've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and in the legal industry, diversity. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, which celebrates the contribution of America's workers with disabilities past and present and showcases supportive, inclusive employment policies and practices. In honor of this month and today's episode, we will be discussing neurodiversity in the legal industry, the obstacles faced by neurodiverse lawyers, and what the legal industry can do better to foster work environments that encourage and accommodate neurodiversity. We're joined today by Haley Moss, who is a lawyer, neurodiversity expert, author, artist, and advocate. She's a consultant on disability inclusion and neurodiversity to corporations and nonprofits and an adjunct professor of psychology at Taylor University. As an author, she writes frequently about autism in various contexts and her own personal experiences, media representation, and politics. Her writing has been featured in The Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and other media outlets, and she's the author of four books, including Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. She was also the first openly autistic attorney in the state of Florida. Haley, we are delighted that you have joined us today. We thank you. And we're very much looking forward to our discussion. Thank you for having me. It's just been fantastic. All right. Well, we look forward to the conversation, Haley. I'm just going to give a little background for the audience. Outside the box thinking has always been an asset in the legal profession. There's an obvious business case to be made for hiring neurodiverse attorneys. In addition to the moral case for DEI efforts that aim to create a legal industry that's more inclusive and accommodating to all, lawyers that might identify as neurodiverse include those with ADHD, autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, learning disabilities, and other neurological differences. While there are not definitive statistics on neurodiversity representation in law, the industry has always benefited from neurodiverse lawyers. Haley, you, you say in your book that, uh, that John mentioned, and um, to remind the audience, uh, great minds think differently, neurodiversity for lawyers and other professionals, that neurodiversity may be a relatively new concept for some readers, but we interface with people who think differently than us each day. It's neither, uh, your assertion, I think, it's neither better or worse, just different, and different can be extraordinary. We can be extraordinary in how we work with our neurodiverse colleagues, friends, and family members, as well as our clients. 
you say that your hope is that this book makes uh, including neurodiverse populations in the legal profession and interacting uh, with uh, this diverse population um, more natural and more equitable. So with that, why don't we get started? Um, love to hear just a little about your background uh, and what inspires you to uh, these all these roles that you have, uh, being an author, a public speaker, and an advocate. Absolutely. And I feel like there's no easy answer to how I got here. I was diagnosed with autism back in 1997. So I was three years old. And as we know, the 90s were a very different time when we talk about awareness the way that we are talking about even now. So when we think about disability, especially things that are neurological or cognitive, we've had a lot of stigma. And I also think that what we've dealt with since the 90s has been very different. So when I was first diagnosed, my parents didn't have access to the wealth of information that we have today. We didn't have the internet the same way that we do now. I mean, we had pretty much dial up AOL. And my parents were very fortunate in finding some local resources to help get us started on that journey. I was originally a non-speaker, so I didn't start talking until I was about four or five and didn't really start voicing my own opinions and words until maybe closer to the first grade. So I was a late speaker and I realized that's partly why I did get my diagnosis. I do think that I'd might have gotten diagnosed with autism a lot later in life if that didn't happen. So I do recognize the privilege there as well. I have always been creative and I always knew somewhere deep down that I wanted to help other people. And that's how I got to law in the first place. And that's also how I got into writing. So I wrote my first book when I was a teenager, which is wild to think about. But I was invited to share my experiences as an autistic person as a 13-year-old at a conference in Orlando, Florida. And when you're 13, you're going to agree to go to Orlando because you want to go to Disney World. So <laughs> without further ado, I ended up going to this conference. I was on this panel. I was the youngest one. I was the only girl. And for some reason, everybody was really curious about what middle school was like for me. And before I knew it, I was fielding an offer from a publisher and writing a book. And that's how I got started. I didn't plan on becoming an advocate or an activist of any sort. I planned to just keep my autism, especially as a teenager, as this need to know thing. Because I spent so much time just wanting to be accepted. I wanted to make friends. I didn't want to be bullied or harassed or treated differently. That's one of the big things about neurodiversity and disability is you're always afraid people are going to treat you differently or look at you as you're really strange. So I wanted to minimize that, especially as a young person. But I realized that that's in a way also contributing to the stigmas that people just think that maybe you're strange or you're weird or if we don't talk about it, it's something to be ashamed of. And I was never ashamed of being autistic. I just looked at it as other people are not going to understand this. But I feel very fortunate that once I started sharing my story as a young person, that folks really did want to learn more. They wanted to do better. And I felt that being able to share and help others and give back was the thing that I was meant to do. I know it sounds a little bit corny saying this is something that you were meant to do, but I genuinely felt that way. And once I got to law school, I think I had a very different take on it as well. I was young. I was someone who really just wanted to get into disability rights. And I didn't know what that looked like. I entered law school at 21 and I thought I was going to go work for the government or I thought I'd be doing something really amazing in civil rights. And then I realized that representing people with disabilities felt too close to home for me. I was overly empathetic, contrary to the stereotypes of autism that we lack empathy. 
I couldn't stop thinking about any of the other disabled folks who I would encounter or that I would be working on their cases. So that's why I did not become a disability rights attorney. (laughs) But for me, generally speaking, that a lot of neurodiversity is just the marriage for me of my personal experience and also my professional experience as someone who just wants to help other people understand how to navigate the legal system and for the legal industry to be more accommodating, equitable, and accepting and inclusive for that matter. There's a lot in that answer uh, that we're going to obviously discuss during the course of this podcast. But just before we go, if you could level set for all of us, because I think it's a term that not everybody is familiar with, what do you mean by neurodiversity or does it have a general meaning? That's a great question. And I've also come to learn that depending on where you're from or how you view neurodiversity, your definition might be slightly different. But I try to take the most justice-centered, inclusive, and widespread definition possible. And that's because neurodiversity is not meant to be a gatekeeping tool. That even the person who coined the phrase neurodivergent, Cassian Azumasu, makes it clear that this is not something that's a gatekeeping tool of we don't get to decide who is and who isn't neurodivergent. But when we're talking about neurodiversity as a whole, we're talking about that All of our brains work differently, no matter who you are, whether you're neurotypical and your brain is in that majority of people who your brain works in expected ways or you are neurodivergent. And this is where things get a little thorny for folks is trying to figure out who is neurodivergent, especially because we have this tendency, especially in employment context, to view this through the lens of who is viewed as productive socially acceptable and deserving of taking up space at times. And when we do this, we tend to sanitize neurodiversity to mean autistic people who don't need a lot of support or don't have an intellectual disability, people with ADHD and people with learning disabilities, people that we view as productive, creative, easy to accommodate, geniuses almost. But that's not the definition that I choose to use whatsoever. That I think of neurodivergence of anyone whose brain works outside of this idea of typical, this minority, so to speak. So I use this definition that usually is used more often in the United Kingdom, actually, that does include not just autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, but also is inclusive of mental health and psychiatric disabilities. And that includes the ones that are more heavily stigmatized, as well as just your anxiety and depression, but also things like schizophrenia, bipolar, etc. Intellectual disabilities who also seem to get seemingly pretty left out of the neurodiversity conversation. Folks with things like Tourette syndrome, even things that just affect your cognition. So I know that some folks will also include things like cerebral palsy that includes how your brain and neurological function is working. And something that I include that a lot of people often don't think about is any kind of acquired cognitive disability. So anything that changes how your brain works. And when I think about acquired cognitive disabilities, I think about things like Alzheimer's, dementia, and traumatic brain injuries. All of these things change how your brain works and thinks and processes information. For instance, I had a friend when I was in law school who was in a car accident and did have a traumatic brain injury as a result of that. And my friend's brain completely changed. And sometimes they would fail to recall words or string certain things together and was often explaining that to future supervisors and the like of, hey, my brain isn't the same as it was when I first started law school because this thing happened to me. Under these definitions of neurodiversity, we have quite a lot of people who are considered neurodivergent. And something that I know comes up quite a bit is we say, well, all these people don't seem like they have a lot in common. And in a way, that's true. Because there's no one size fits all to be accommodating of so many different people with so many different needs. 
But each of us has probably faced that bias, that exclusion, or have had different treatment or different needs depending on how our brain works in order to make legal more accessible. It's kind of just where I'm thinking right now just to kind of set the tone on what neurodiversity and neurodivergence is for that matter. Can I ask one follow-up question before Brian asks a question, the next question, which is, um, do you include reading disorders or reading disabilities as well, which may be particularly relevant for some lawyers? Absolutely. And I usually throw that in under learning disabilities because most reading disabilities are indeed learning disabilities. Okay. So things like dyslexia is usually pretty much at the top of that list or comes straight to mind. Thanks, John. And, and uh, Haley, uh, th- thanks for uh, getting us started down this path. And I'll, I'm going to build on, you know, something that John just asked you and just give a little bit of context too for our audience and and those others that 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 may be listening and, and for you to maybe drill down a little bit more into our space. Uh, so we, you know, work uh, other than the pro bono work we do, we work uh, fairly exclusively within big law. So uh, the AMLA 200 uh, law firms and big corporate legal departments. Um, and so in that context, um, there, uh, not that there's not in other places, but there's often, you know, uh, pretty harsh deadlines, uh, fast moving pace, all, all of those kind of things. So I'm wondering against that backdrop specifically, you know, what are some of the challenges that you may see for a neurodiverse person? And, um, you know, as, as John was building up, one of the things that we understand that happens, say, maybe uh, in law school or on the bar, there can be, you know, accommodations, you know, more time to kind of get through, uh, get through the stuff without skipping over to, um, you know, to the solutions quite yet. How do you see those challenges for uh, neurodiverse people coming and wanting to practice in big law? First off, let me preface this with, I was never in big law, so I do not have the firsthand experience as a neurodivergent person in big law. I do not want to claim to speak on behalf of someone who does have that experience. (laughs) And I also think this really does depend on the form of neurodivergence and the individual, because even as an autistic, that some of the needs that I have are very different than needs that other autistic people have. So I try to look at this as a very individual thing, but things that I know can be difficult, like you mentioned, are that fast pace, are that deadline-driven culture. Even having those long hours or having to navigate kind of office politics or just even getting an email that says, please fix, that seems very vague without knowing what you may have done incorrectly or what needs to be fixed. All things that I think of as hallmarks of legal culture in particular. And like you mentioned very briefly, if you are someone who has a disability or you are neurodivergent, you are likely able to get accommodations if you disclose. That is something that you should be taking up with your big law firm's HR department. And if you want to, you can even talk to the managing partner, whoever is in charge of your day-to-day operations and work. But that's a whole other kind of segue that I think we'll get to a little bit later. I do feel that the things that were hard for me weren't just keeping track of deadlines, but also being able to sort what was really important and what was urgent. So you know how it is that you're juggling a lot of different client matters, a lot of different things. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what you need to be doing and when, especially because there's this thing, especially in my brain, that everything is important because someone said it has to be done right now. Or there's this thing that I think is really important because I think it's the most interesting thing on my desk. 
So I always struggled with that personally. And I also struggled with just the office environment quite a bit. So I was in a local mid-sized firm. And when I was there, I struggled a lot with the fact my office literally had fluorescent lights because I would hear them hum all day. They were too bright. It would distract me. It was a sensory nightmare that everybody has different things that can be difficult for them. So I definitely would start with the individual. And I think especially in legal, we see a lot of folks with ADHD who wander through, whether it's big law or just in general. So if you look at some of the studies from the ABA, they had a great mental health study back in 2018. And there was this really interesting statistic that popped out of me at about 12.5% of lawyers met the criteria for an ADHD diagnosis, and then they never mentioned it again, which was super strange to me. But with that in mind, I do think a lot of those executive function things can be particularly difficult for not just ADHD attorneys, but for autistics, folks with learning disabilities who are struggling as well with their mental health is trying to prioritize things, actually get things done, make sure that things are reminded to do, all of the things that we sometimes take for granted. So when I talk about executive functioning, I'm really talking about your brain's ability to get things done, that control center, the Mm -hmm. making sure I don't leave laundry in the dryer for five days function, things like that. It's not as simple as your your brain's just ability to get stuff done, but it's that control center. And sometimes it doesn't always send the right signals or it just doesn't happen, at least for me. So those are some of the things that I think can be particularly difficult for neurodivergent attorneys. And I think in big law, there's also a culture that you need to be able to do this almost flawlessly. Yeah. Um, th- th- uh, John, go ahead, jump in. I was just, uh, I was just appreciating nope. the, the knowledge that she was you know, going through. So thank you for that answer. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about what inspired you to write your book, Haley, in a minute. But before I do, I just wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about priv- your personal privilege, um, which you linked to having been diagnosed um, at a particular point in time. And, you know, at Legal Innovators, uh, a lot of our lawyers, not all, are first-generation lawyers, and that may or may not also mean they may come from family backgrounds where they don't have the privilege to have been diagnosed with any issue that may that they may be experiencing. And certainly from my personal observations in life and through my family, I've seen um, the difference uh, between uh, the, the path that's taken by someone who has been lucky enough to both get diagnosed and get support services early so they can learn to advocate for themselves and also learn compensating strategies and those who haven't. And if this is all hitting you for the first time in a major stressful big law environment, that's a lot to handle. So uh, maybe in connection with uh, with your addressing what inspired you to write, to, to write your book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neo-Diversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, you can weave in the importance of um, of this, uh, the things that come with privilege and the and the disadvantages that come when you don't have it. Oh my gosh, I think we can probably spend an entire episode diving into why people don't get diagnosed or to why that is such a privilege. So especially in neurodiversity, the people that get most disproportionately impacted by inequitable access to services and diagnosis are typically women and gender nonconforming folks, people of color and people with lower socioeconomic statuses. So you basically hit the nail right on the head. And that's why I also talk about how I feel lucky, especially because at least with a lot of neurodivergent women in particular, we get missed because 
first off, if you look at the autism diagnosis criteria, a lot of it is written with boys in mind. That's always how it's been historically based on even early autism research. Again, kind of a little rabbit hole thought. And there were people, even when I was growing up, they were like, oh, girls don't have that. That's something for boys. So that was super interesting. And a lot of the times, a lot of us also, if you do have access, so even if the first time folks have discovered this is in college or in law school, for that matter, you might have gotten a misdiagnosis, especially if you are someone who is autistic or an ADHD person, that you might have gotten misdiagnosed with anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder. I've seen it happen time and time again. And a lot of these things do co-occur. So some of the biggest things that occur in tandem are autism with ADHD, ADHD with depression, or autism with anxiety. A lot of these things do happen together. So I know that seems like a little bit of a tangent. And a lot of the reason that folks get missed as well is there's this idea of masking and camouflaging. And I talk about this very little within the book as well. But I think it's something that for lawyers is probably a lot of pressure that we face, to be quite honest, is to appear as neurotypical as possible. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. You want to be well-liked. You want to be respected. You want to get that job in the first place and overcome that hurdle of interviews. And especially when we talk about big law, that on-campus interview, OCI interviewing culture is something I know is very unnatural, to put it like lightly. That's partly why I didn't even bother applying for a big law position, is even if I did want to do it at the time, I knew I would OCI was setting me up to fail because I don't know those social rules. I wouldn't know how to act in those situations. There was no preparation for that beyond our typical, we need to help neurodivergent and autistic people get ready for job interviews. No job coach would have been able to help me with that situation pretty much, even if I wanted it. So services would have failed me at that point too. So kind of a little bit to think about as to why. And what really inspired me as well is when I was actually going into my 2L year, I looked at diversity summer associateships, as so many of us often do. And disability was never part of that equation. That the equation at the time really was for gender minorities, racial minorities, and was just beginning to include LGBTQ plus populations. So even though disability is one of the largest minorities, if not the largest minority in the United States today, we're about one in four people, that we were not seen as valued. There was barely even the note at the bottom of applications of how to ask for an accommodation. And then when I started looking at the diversity data from the profession, I realized only less than 1% of lawyers were self-disclosing having a disability. That really freaked me out, especially given how many of us are out there. And especially within the autism community, especially like for us, we have one of the highest rates of unemployment or underemployment where our skills don't match the job that we have. And I already felt like before I even got into the profession that the odds were stacked against me. And that didn't feel fair. Even if I worked twice as hard, I had a lot of the accolades. I was on a journal. I was club president in certain things in law school. I was very involved. I had a public interest scholarship to even go to my law school. Like I was a pretty decent candidate, I think, at that time. And I already had at the back of my head, there's a very good chance you're not even going to graduate with a job just based on this alone. I thankfully did have a job waiting for me after graduation. I feel like I met the right people at the right time, which is why that happened by no means thanks to the traditional interview process. (laughs) So I felt like right away there was this huge knowledge gap. And a lot of attorneys and a lot of judges don't know how to interact with people who think differently and whose brains work differently than they do. Even while I was in law school, a lot of my colleagues were in our school's 
family law clinic. It was called the Children and Youth Law Clinic at my law school. And oftentimes, the clients they would be representing were foster youth. And a lot of these foster youth had disabilities of some sort. Needless to say, I was getting asked by a lot of my peers how to handle going to an individualized education plan or IEP meeting. And I do not think I was supposed to at 22 years old, being someone who had lived experience, supposed to be the person telling you how to navigate somebody else's IEP meeting. I did not have an IEP because I didn't even go to public school and it was already assumed that I did. So there was so much to break down here that I felt like there has to be something and there's so little out there for us. How can I help make this better? Especially as someone who does have lived experience and professional experience and I've had to navigate those systems of how do I deal with this accommodation thing? Why did I forgo it in certain situations and how can we hopefully make things better? And what I've also learned throughout my career, especially after I went viral as an autistic attorney, is there's so many neurodiverse lawyers out there who aren't saying they are or they have this light bulb moment that hits them of, oh, wait. This is me. I didn't realize I can get support in some way. Or this is my client and I didn't realize there's a different way that I could support them. And that is the stuff that really keeps me energized and makes me want our profession to do better. John, did you have uh, follow-ups that you wanted to ask on the book before I move to the next question or... Uh, I have so much, but we don't have the time. So okay. I think you ought to move <laughs> right, we'll to the keep, next we'll question, keep, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring it out during the rest. No, I I agree. This is uh, this is this is fascinating, and um, you know, Ailey, thank you for providing so much color as we go. I'm going to ask you about some steps that employers could potentially take, right? And you know, two things were occurring to me as you were talking um, because you um, you talk about lived experience, right? And another context for me, it's just like um, I think people sometimes don't value lived experience, number one. Uh, And then two, that it strikes me that until there may be more people in management and that sort of thing that have that lived experience that can take some of those steps, um, you know, it can be tough. Uh, But as we turn to what employers can do, I wonder if you could factor this into your answer as well. I understand what you were saying about, you know, people feeling like they may be treated differently or stigma or whatever. And so there may be lots of reasons that employers, uh, like you could get a big law job and employers not know uh, about one of these, one of these conditions. So, you know, the, the question generically is, you know, what are some of the steps that employers can take to uh, ensure a more inclusive and understanding culture? Um, and then two, where they may not know, you know, what can they do? And maybe it's a chicken and the egg. If the culture is right, what has to be right about the culture for someone to feel comfortable kind of uh, coming forward and saying, okay, hey, this is me, still do the work, but these are a couple of uh, accommodations that maybe, maybe I could use. Oh my gosh, this is such a fun question to unpack, primarily because disclosure in particular is so individual that there are folks like me who are very loud and proud and will tell you all about being neurodivergent and the life experience that I have. And then there are people who will never say anything. So on that note, if you are a manager of some sort, it is not your job to figure out who is and who isn't disclosing. You're not there to out people or make them feel bad about themselves. And inclusive culture starts from the top down and it starts from all different processes. It's not that big laws and environment where neurodiversity can't thrive. It's that There are different opportunities at every step of the way that we somehow shut it down, essentially. And not even just with the people who are already there that are 
concealing neurodiversity or not saying anything, but even with new hires. So one of the fun things that I always like to tell people, if you want to just have a quick little example for fun, is check your job descriptions. And usually we talk a lot about how accommodations and the essential functions of the job, but oftentimes if you read a typical job description, not just for lawyers, but for most jobs, you will see some arbitrary requirement that requires it be that you have great people skills, even if you're not interfacing with clients, or you'll see something like you must have the ability to lift 50 pounds or have a driver's license, even if your job doesn't require that you drive or involve manual labor. And all of these little things are ways that we somehow weed out different populations. So we might weed out folks who don't have the ability to drive, who don't have the money, who can't afford an adaptive vehicle, whatever it may be. So think about just right there, you just automatically excluded a huge swath of people who can work. And if you have that 50 pound requirement, you might weed out people who have chronic illnesses or physical disability. That's kind of one of the first places I tell people to look if you want to look from outward before looking in, because it's the easiest place to catch things that you're like, oh, wow, this is weirdly biased, even though we didn't know it was or didn't think of it that way. That's a lot of the times why some of those types of random things exist in job descriptions as a kind of a loophole to exclude people. But from internal culture, what I always recommend when we are being inclusive, especially something that Big Law, I think, has been doing a really great job at rectifying recently, is the creation of affinity groups. So Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate that the more time that I do get to interact with colleagues in Big Law, I have been learning that they have been having disability and mental health affinity groups or ERGs or BRGs, depending on what the firm calls them. I know that there's been more kind of onus on making sure that we take care of ourselves, the benefits are getting better, things like that. That's a great start. And I also love whenever we notice that firms are beginning to bring in speakers like me for CLE or even for National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. But as much as I appreciate it and I love getting to speak to firms, I do wish we'd go a little bit deeper, whether it's a series rather than just a one-off or that you're really taking disability inclusion seriously. And there's so many ways that you could do that. So the ABA Commission on Disability Rights has a pledge that a lot of firms can take. And you can even join if you want to be a disability inclusive employer. There's different initiatives from organizations like Disability In. And if you look at the different major companies, and a lot of them are Fortune 500 that take their pledge or are listed on their disability equality index, there's not really a lot of law firms. And it's really a huge contrast compared to a lot of corporate America in that aspect. But I do think that inclusion is not kind of a one size fits all. I do think it does take steps. And if you are someone who is a leader, and this is an issue that impacts you or your family or your loved ones or someone that you know, don't be afraid to say something. I do this a lot with my students. I teach college. And I'm very open and vulnerable with them, and it makes them feel that it's safe to disclose or feel comfortable with me. And I think a lot of the times, especially when it comes to things like mental health disabilities, the onus falls on the younger generations or the new hires to be the ones who are open, not the folks who are well-established who don't have anything to lose. Look at how there's been a generational shift of how we even talk about this, that I don't think lawyers of a different generation than I am who are maybe older than me would have the same level of comfort based on how they grew up, those cultural norms and stigmas, while the generation below me, Gen Z, is a lot more open than even us as millennials are. So I do think that there's a cultural shift happening just based on age and generation. But I also think we have to acknowledge that this is not something that needs to fall exclusively on the new hires 
and the young people. I think that's something that gets lost a lot in translation. And make sure that when we are talking about diversity, that disability and neurodiversity are diversity. It is not a mental health or health and wellness problem. It is not a health condition solely that this is indeed part of the diversity of our workforce. And I think that's somewhere a lot of bar associations in particular have gotten tripped up over the years as well. Is anytime I wanted to bring disability and accessibility issues to the forefront, it automatically got lumped into a health and wellness perspective rather than a diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility perspective. Good perspective. So Haley, I was going to ask you a, a question about advocacy, but you you hit on it, I think. But I do want to make an observation and get your views on it. I think that for people of my generation, but even younger people, there are lots of people who haven't, they just ha- haven't figured out why it is they're struggling with certain things that other people aren't struggling with. And it's making their work 10 times harder for them. I was at a conference for professional development and trainers, and there's a person who has developed a training program for writing skills for people with dyslexia or ADHD um, to help them, uh, because there, he his view is there's a, a, a major undiagnosed percentage of the population in big law, that is, in all law that is struggling with this, but doesn't know why. And so my sense is that two things I would say as an observation. One, if we as individual lawyers can get in touch with why is this seeming to be harder? Why are we struggling to get organized? Why are we procrastinating? Why is the writing so much harder for us than it seems to be for someone else? Is there something there that we should seek additional help on that would make life, it's it's hard enough as it is, does it have to be so torturous? Um, and the second thing is, I would say to people supervising other people, you have to listen to what people are saying, not in terms of when they're talking about what it is that 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 um that they that troubles them so much how do they think? Because if you can understand how they think, then you can tailor your assignment to the way they they process it. And you'll just be much more effective in getting um, good work product. So those are my observations for your thoughts. I think you're on the right path. I'm going to start with the last thing you said about tailoring assignments. I really am a fan of that. And I think so, a caveat to that, because I think a lot of managers can end up misunderstanding that, is that you're modifying the nature of the work, which is not what you're doing. It's just how you communicate that same assignment. So I think of this about one of the first times I got asked to just go write a motion. Just go write the response to this. The first thing I did was stare at the wall. I didn't know where to start. It just seemed like a lot of stuff. And I just got handed a motion and said, go write a response. That's not going to help me process it. I didn't know when it was due. I didn't know what the background of the case was. I didn't know anything. I I stared at a wall for three hours because I was frustrated and confused and didn't want to admit that I didn't understand. But what I learned is I can ask, okay, how, when is this due? When did we get this? Or where do you want me to start? Or what and learn to ask those questions. And then my supervisors got better at not giving vague instructions. Or what I learned to do better is is that, hey, I really am interested and excited to work on this. Can you give me clearer instructions? I work really well 
without the ambiguity, which is one way that you can ask for an accommodation without asking for an accommodation is kind of fill in that script of I work really well when you do this, or it's extremely helpful if you do X. It's kind of cheating in that respect, but it helps a lot of people who don't know they're different, don't want to admit that they're different, or they just realize this is an effective communication tool. And I think that's something else. Something I also love that I do whenever I manage people now is I always ask people how they communicate, which seems kind of silly, but I will ask them to tell me like two or three things about themselves. So I might tell someone like, I'm not a morning person. If you call me unprompted, I will probably think it's an emergency. And don't be afraid to send me a follow-up email. I promise I probably mentally hit send without physically hitting send. And usually those things tell people like, okay, we're not being annoying if we send a reminder. We'll try not to schedule things at 8 a.m. And we will call if it's an emergency or we'll we'll say, hey, can we talk about X or I'll send a text or an email first. It doesn't tell you why those things might be anxiety inducing or difficult for me. It doesn't explain about my executive functioning, that phone calls might make me anxious if they're unprompted, things of that nature. I don't have to explain that when I do that. And going back to other things that you were saying earlier that we're thinking of, why is this so hard for me? Should we be looking into it? My advice, because I know there's a lot of debate about the self-diagnosis thing. And when it comes to self-diagnosis, I am not against it. And I say that very intentionally. I know it sounds kind of strange. First off, if you are self-diagnosed, you probably will not be able to get a formal accommodation. But if you are using this as a self-discovery tool or you were thinking something is fundamentally flawed about me and something is wrong with me, and you are someone who perhaps stumbles upon an ADHD YouTuber and are nodding along and going, oh my gosh, this is me. I might have ADHD, as so many folks I know have done. And then you realize that's something you identify with and maybe you want to look into. Maybe you don't. That's on you. If you need medication or you need a formal accommodation, I would pursue a formal diagnosis in that case. Otherwise, it's a fantastic self-discovery tool where you realize, okay, there's like three different conditions that executive functioning is absolute garbage in. And a lot of this matches me. And then you can start learning perhaps how to do better executive functioning. And something that I think is really important when we talk about neurodivergence and neurodiversity Especially if that's you or you realize, wait, I can't do this as well as other people because there's a lot of things I can't do as well as other people. Is It doesn't mean that I am fundamentally flawed, broken, or a failed version of normal. It just means that's the way my brain works. I am a terrible note taker. I always have been a terrible note taker. When I was in school, people would cover for me. Like my parents would help me outline things in the textbooks because that's how we got through that. And then I realized I'm just a terrible note taker because I can't cognitively sort through what someone is saying, what is important, what am I going to need to remember, let alone actually remember to reference these notes in three days before an exam or something else. And that doesn't mean that something's wrong with me. It just means I'm not a good note taker. And here's why it's really difficult on my brain. But if you show me or I can memorize it or something else, it will probably go better. Meanwhile, other people might not be good at that. So I think it's important that we look at this as objectively as possible is every single person has strengths and every single person has weaknesses. I can probably memorize all the notes that you take, but I can't take the notes. Meanwhile, I don't think that's true for a lot of other folks. So it's kind of just really sorting through that. And again, if you do think that this is you, I highly recommend you either talk to somebody, do some self-exploration, and realize that it doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. And if you're a supervisor or someone and you notice that these changes are happening, so this happens a lot to folks who are struggling with mental health or burnout, is you realize their performance isn't the same, they seem more easily distracted or things aren't getting done. 
instead of just going straight to berating them or somehow quote-unquote punishing them, just ask, is everything okay? I've noticed X. How can I support you? And do it from that non-judgmental lens because it might be that push that somebody needs to get support or it might set put the ball in your court to say, you know, you're, you're right. I've been struggling with depression or I realize this is because of whatever happened in my life or ADHD or autism or whatever it may be that it feels safe in that moment just by asking how you can be supportive. And then you can have that deeper conversation with somebody. Just a couple of little thoughts based on your thoughts. Thank you for that. We uh, we, we uh, are going to move to uh, maybe our last question. And then something that uh, uh, John loves, the little fun we have with each guest is to share a, share a pet peeve with us. So I'll prepare you to, uh, to, to share that. And then we will uh, thank you um, and let you go about your day. And then uh, John and myself and, and uh, Dr. Jesse Greenblatt um, are going to talk and recap uh, what we've heard here. So the first is, you know, relatively easy in one way, um, because obviously you know yourself, but also hard, right? Because you talk about the journey being an individual one for people. And so the question we had is, uh, you know, you've been a trailblazer of sorts, right? The, the, the first openly autistic uh, attorney uh, in the state of Florida. And so what advice might you have for others that um, will either want to follow in your footsteps, whether they want to be, you know, speakers and advocates like, like you, or they just want to come, you know, to terms with just the wonderful person that they are and be able to share that um, in a in a way that's comfortable for them in the workplace. Oh, my gosh. I think the first thing is that, at least for me, was realizing you're not broken. You're not a failed version of normal. And I know that's mm -hmm. a really big thing to hear from someone else who's lived it because it's something that I needed to hear. And the first time I heard it is you were perfect in an imperfect world. And that was from a family friend. I was maybe 13. And that really helped me at the time. And I realized, you know, it's okay. I am the way I am. Not everybody's going to understand that. So what? Who cares? And that was really big on that kind of self-acceptance journey for me. As for what you're hoping to do, I always hope that folks have support systems, whatever that looks like, whether it's your family, your friends, your colleagues, therapists, or if you are still in school, your professors, mentors, whoever it may be, I hope that you have a good support system. And what I always find myself saying to other neurodivergent folks is that you are valid, you are loved, and you are so talented and passionate and you deserve so much better. And a lot of the things that we see as personal failures aren't always personal failures. Sometimes it's also just systemic what we're expect that we're expecting a lot of people. And the more I think about it, quite honestly, this is a random thought is that neurotypical social culture kind of fails all of us that we all fall short of meeting these social norms all the time and we beat ourselves up for it is, oh, I didn't make small talk. Oh, I didn't shake hands with this mm. person. Am I supposed to do this? Am I not supposed to do this? Like, the, I realize this mm -hmm. happens to more people than I than just the neurodivergent folks in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we realize that a lot of these social cultural norms and are kind of constraining to all of us, it helps us be free to be ourselves. So I hope that as well that you find the things that make you happy. And something else about neurodiversity and especially mental health that I've learned is we spend so much time talking about everything that's hard for us. We spend a lot of time talking mm. about our pain, our struggle. But I want you to also spend some time thinking about your joy, the things that you actually love to do, the things that make you who you are, something that you like about yourself today, 
or just something that you enjoy doing. I get really happy when people actually let me share my joy rather than, oh, my executive functioning is trash or or I don't always understand different ways to communicate with people or sometimes my hands do this and people don't understand or they think I'm strange. Like I try to think of what are things that bring me joy? Why am I at peace and acceptance with this brain and body that I have? So I think that's a huge part of that component no matter what you are hoping to accomplish. I think a lot of it really is not to sound too kind of mushy, I guess it kind of is a little bit of a self-love journey, even though you don't want to admit that it really is. But I think that's a huge part of it. And the rest will either follow or it's about networking. It's about hustles, about all the other stuff that makes you you to get to where you want to be. Well, thank you for that. We appreciate you uh, sharing so much knowledge with not only us, but our audience. Uh, and as I said, we do a segment uh, next on uh, on pet peeves. But John, are you ready or would you like I, me to? I, I am unfortunately ready. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can tell he loves this part, guys. <laughs> um, so uh, my, my pet peeve since the last session uh, is this new fraud that's been perpetrated on all of us, which is calls you receive from people purporting to be the fraud department of some company you're doing business with. Right. So the fraudsters <laughs> are posing as the security people in the fraud company, Right. Um, which immediately is designed to create confidence because you think they're saving you from a fraud, right. when in fact, what they're trying to do is get your information so they can perpetrate a fraud. It's right. kind of clever until you figure out uh, which you can uh, pretty quickly <laughs> for there's a lot of signals that this isn't legit. So right. I got one not long ago that came up on my phone as coming from Verizon Wireless. Now, oh, wow. some technological person will have to explain to me how they can create that on your phone where they're dialing from a number that purports to be from a company. Mm -hmm. But it was maybe there was a digit missing. I don't know. But it said Verizon Wireless on my phone. So I picked it up. And it was a woman who was telling me that because I had missed the last payment, um, I had 19 minutes to make the payment or they were going to cut off my phone. Now, right. the fact that this was going to be cut off within 19 minutes sounded harsh. Um, very specific. <laughs> very specific. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And they use 19, not 20. Um, on the other hand, uh, it also caused me to think, oh my God, I've got my GPS system on and one of my daughters is waiting for us to call to let her know where we're going. And if I lose all that, I'm in trouble, right? right. So I started to engage. I said, well, you know, she said something to me and I said, well, I'm not going to give you any information over the phone. Then this was part of the clever part of the fraud. She said, uh, well, I'm not asking you for it. I would never ask for any information from you over the phone thereby verifying that she's a security person, right? She said, instead, I'm going to give you a number you should call. And then the giveaway was, she said, and you should ask for Mel when you get that number. <laughs> Mel at Verizon. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually don't remember whether it was Mel, but it was some name that did not sound like someone you should be asking for if you were calling the security department at Verizon. 
uh, wireless. So I, so to make a long story short, I stopped quickly to make sure I had in fact made the payment on time, which I had, uh, and uh, it continued on my merry way. And 19 minutes after the call, my phone still worked. Uh, but uh, <laughs> and, but and you hadn't sc- compromised your security. <laughs> I had not compromised my security, but it's not. It's not hard to do it and fall yeah. for it. So uh, so that's my pet peeve, and there's a lot of it going around. And uh, my advice is never pick up your phone, no matter who's calling. <laughs> there. Yeah. How about you, uh, Ellie? Anything uh, either bothering you or... Something that's been bothering me is people who spell my name wrong in my in my email inbox because my name is literally in my email address twice. It's in my signature. It's on my website. You guys can figure it out. There's no extra Y in there. I promise. <laughs> it really just drives me up the wall. And then I, my heart goes out to folks who have more complex names than mine. My name is pretty simple. It's four, five letters, not four letters, but it just drives me up the wall. Just I to could give t- you the flip side oh, of that, yeah. Haley, uh, one of my daughters is named Hallie. And everyone calls her Haley. So maybe you guys should get together. Um, Former union. (laughs) Oh, that would be fantastic. She's like, wait a minute. It's not Haley. She's either Haley or Holly. But she's almost never Hallie. Oh, my gosh. It's a fun group of names to somehow screw up. Right. Well, I think it's nothing wrong with correcting people. People use an I in my name, and then I write back with a giant Y in quotes so that they can have it imprinted. Anyway, my uh, my transition, uh, my uh, pet peeve. You have a Y in your name? Yeah. See, this is this is a guy I've known for quite a few few years now. Um, anyway, um, now that the world is getting back to traveling, um, we are, uh, and I'm glad. By the way, um, we're going to fun places, doing lots of work, uh, work and that sort of thing. So I'm not going to get graphic, but my pet peeve has to do with airplane bathrooms so i am six three no not even the the gross stuff or what could be going on but um that i'm six three and i can't even stand up in the bathroom and i get it like you're economizing space you want to maximize seats but you should be able to stand up straight when you go to a bathroom so yet oh actually let me not use words out there i don't want to get us in legal trouble but all the major airlines and you know who you are make a bathroom where a normal sized person can stand up straight so brian the message is you're not supposed to stand more accessible period and also the so they're inaccessible to tall people people with physical disabilities wheelchair users and god knows who else yeah uh, so with that, we are going to, we'll close out. Um, thank you for joining us on this point. We'll take a, a just a small break. We're going to come back and recap uh, the things that we heard. And we hope, I know that you're in demand, especially this month, but this is, you know, I say this as a, as a African-American um, that we shouldn't confine things that we care about to just any one month. And I hope that you may come back and share more with us. Um, I know John would share that as well. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So what a great conversation with Haley. Uh, we would now like to take a few minutes to reflect on what we heard um, with the help of uh, Dr. Uh, Jesse Walker. And during the podcast, I mistakenly referred to her as Dr. Jesse Greenblatt. So I apologize. <laughs> uh, Jesse is our head of wellness here at Legal Innovators and has a, a great perspective. We're glad that she could join us. Um, Jesse works with our junior attorneys to help them achieve their optimal well-being goals. She is doctor of clinical psychology. And prior to joining Legal Innovators, 
and specializing her work uh, to young attorneys. She worked with diverse client populations to help people develop their personal mental health toolkits to overcome feelings of isolation, imposter syndrome, depression, and anxiety. Jesse and John, um, maybe we just start high level and then we go back and forth with each other. What were your initial thoughts as we as we heard what we just did, which I think was a wonderful uh, education, uh, certainly for me? Yeah, thank you. And I thought that was a really wonderful conversation. Um, I was like taking many notes throughout. Um, so I think initial thoughts, a couple things that came to mind. I thought what Haley was saying around the no one size fits all mm -hmm. when it comes to disability disclosure, um, accommodations, just sort of generally thinking about anyone who is neurodivergent. Um was really fascinating to me and something I think I've been thinking about too as I build up the wellness program at Legal Innovators is how do we support folks um, who might identify as being neurodivergent but thinking holistically in terms of what they're needing and um, and even you know something that she didn't mention directly but I do think there can be a lot of reasons why people don't disclose. And, and a big one is the stigma that we still carry around yeah. disability. And so that just sort of stuck out to me of how do we sort of support folks individually and also thinking about this as a more um, sort of systemic issue. So just sort of my initial thought. Um, yeah. Anything you want to add? Thanks, Jesse. Well, <laughs> I, I was touching on it, Brian. For me, I, I think that there is a much larger percentage of the population yes. in big law yes. who experience <clears throat> these things than is that that then not only is recognized, but that the people who are who are experiencing them even recognize. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that my generation has learned about these things through our kids' generations, mm. where it's much more open. The diagnostic tools are greater. And yes, there's always some cynic out there who says, oh, ADHD, everybody seems to have ADHD. But the truth is, if you do have ADHD and it's truly diagnosed ADHD, it's a serious difference in the way you process information. Mm -hmm. It just is. And uh, and it shouldn't be minimized through cynicism. And but a lot of my generation, I can reflect a conversation with a former partner of mine who said because of his kids, he now recognized that clearly it had been hereditary in his family and that he had it. And it explained why he went through so much pain mm. whenever he had to prepare for something, you know, writing or, or uh, uh, cross-examination or whatever. He was great at it. But he absolutely tortured himself to get ready right. in a way that other people seem not to do. And they also got ready and did a good job. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I think it's out there to a much greater degree than people recognize. And, and there are people who don't do well when they're tr measured by traditional evaluation techniques or are just working a lot harder to get to the same place than they need to. And that's a loss of productivity. Yeah. That law firms, if they had recognized and addressed, um, could correct. Yes, I'm with both of you on the recap points. And I guess for me, especially, you know, given that, you know, we operate a company that seeks to 
encourage inclusivity and having environments that allow everyone to be their true and authentic selves. I think that's that's when we perform best. And she said something near the end that really struck me, which is uh, you know her realization that you are not broken. Um, and I I juxtaposed this to something that I heard one of my divinity professors over at Howard say, which is our calling comes out of a tradition of brokenness. So it's for her, this is, it's truly where her calling did come from. But I think that the challenge is making an environment where folks can feel free to do this or to, to express who they are. Um, and, and to talk, you know, to, to contextualize this as, as her family friend said, you know, she was perfect in an imperfect world. But, uh, you know, Jesse, I would, uh, I had the same, thought is is John. And I wonder, she gave us also uh, one of the challenges, or at least the challenges is in my mind, and that's a definitional one, right? She's like, there's not a great definition. It's kind of like you're neurodiverse or you're not, right? And we know that that bucket is so full of so much, so many, you know, different conditions that may need different, different treatments. So I guess my question for you is, how would you define that? Um, and as John was just saying, are we seeing an explosion of folks that are neurodiverse or is it really that we've evolved as a society and, and we're just measuring now? So we're, we're, we're catching and identifying it. I love that question, Brian. Um, and I think this is something I've been thinking a lot about because I do believe that there is, it's a both and, that there is now more language and education around neurodiversity and I actually do think we're seeing an influx of people who are really struggling with sort of the ways that their neurodiversity is presenting for themselves in a way that I, I don't think has happened before. Um, and while I sort of myself need to do some more research on why exactly that's happening, I can say, you know, I have um, a nine-month-old son and mm -hmm. something that his pediatrician said is we're seeing more children with autism than ever before. And it's not just because of the measurements. It's we don't know what's causing it, but there is something that is causing this. Um, and so just understanding that, you know, that is both something for us to keep in mind and that we are going to see many more people who are presenting with autism, with neurodiversity sort of going forward. Um, and so just to be aware of that, um, in terms of how I define neurodiversity, I, I really liked Haley's definition. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I have come to really appreciate is it's not about your you working well or not well. It's just different. It's different than right. sort of what the measures that we have right now, the typical measures are. So, and also, by the way, I think something that Haley touched on that I've really come to appreciate is a lot of times the thing that makes someone different can also be a huge gift for them. Yes. So you look at someone and, you know, not to go so into the weeds, but even thinking about so ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I think the disorder piece, like there can be a lot of negative stigma mm -hmm. around saying that, but that's just sort of, you know, diagnostically what it's called. Um, one thing, and this is sort of a misconception around ADHD, while it can be really difficult to focus, and especially when there's a lot of distraction and um, sort of stimuli going on, mm -hmm. can be hard to focus. 
once you are focused on something, the person with ADHD can hone in on a topic so (laughs) deeply that that could actually like make them very successful lawyers. Um, They are able to sort of tune out everything else going on. And sometimes, you know, that comes with it's that can be a challenge at times when there are other things going on that you have to attend to. But you are able to have such an intense focus on something that can be seen as a gift um, and, you know, wanting to help people sort of channel that in a way that works well for them. them. But I think actually like what this conversation is making me think about is helping people recognize ways to use their differences to their advantages. Um, And I will say, I think we are starting to see more and more attorneys who are recognizing that piece and sort of saying like, look, I know that this is something that sort of, it may present challenges to me, but also like, look at all the ways that I'm able to see something that other people aren't, or my approach to work actually like can be really beneficial to me if I can just sort of hone in on the best ways, um, yeah, to channel this. Um, so, so some like initial thoughts there. And um, I think what this conversation is also making me realize is around, as we have conversations around well-being, becoming more inclusive in my language around coping strategies. Um, I actually got this feedback from a neuro- neurodivergent attorney who said, you know, the sort of idea of even just making a to-do list. He said, like, that's great for someone whose brain works that way. He said, for me, the to-do list, I'm going to lose the to-do list. I don't come back to it. Right. That's actually not a way, like writing something down is not a way that I process it. What he suggested, which I thought was really interesting, is he said, a calendar has become my biggest tool. So I'm not writing things down in like a traditional task list. I'm putting them in my calendar Sch- at scheduling the time them. that they need to get done. Yeah. So scheduling has sort of become one of his tools. And so- Yeah, just thinking through other strategies that we can present for people who are neurodivergent, who might just have a different approach and a different work style is something I'm taking away from this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I uh, thank you, Jesse. I like for me, I, you know, when she said, you know, it's different, but different can be extraordinary, like, like you said. And that's for the people that may be comfortable, like saying, hey, this is who I am. And then they have, you know, they have environments that are welcoming, they'll accommodate. And that sort of thing. And so some of her practical tips, and by the way, um, uh, Jesse referred to uh, the definition given by uh, Haley. It's a UK definition for the listeners that includes other categories of, of mental health, just in case people want to look that up. But I thought some practical, somewhat practical tips in, in addition to not the one size fits all, Jesse, that you're putting your finger on, um, and even something as simple as job description. You know, is it open language and that sort of thing? But I couldn't, and, and I, you know, I, I want to let John share whatever <laughs> thoughts he has on his own. But John, uh, you know, you just have much more perspective on this than me. So the question that I was wanting to ask you is, and we have this, you know, but we talked about this and I've heard people talk about this, but is you as somebody that spent so much of your career, really all your career, um, you know, at, at one of these large, you know, really large, you know, law firms and were involved in, in the management of it and that sort of thing. How do you, you talked about learning through your kids' generation, but how do you square that with, you know, maybe the realities of of the law firm? And then as as Jesse and Haley were both saying, 
bring some of those extraordinary gifts there. And maybe it's just the people that are signing the work, you know, to help get them over, hey, this person can, you know, can do this stuff too. I guess I, my, my question, I'm rambling, but is more of a practical one. How would you see that as, uh, as you know, somebody who was a senior leader at a big law firm for so long? Well, I think that leadership has to redefine its role because, uh, you know, it's very easy to say, well, this is all nice to say and nice to have, but we're in a particularly elite end of the practice where the demands are great and maybe it's just not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And if you have one of these, uh, one of these um, disabilities, if you want to call them that, or differences, differences, maybe you shouldn't be here would be kind of a knee-jerk, old-school reaction. Um, I would say that's very narrow, and, and you're not going to obtain the productivity from your workforce, nor are you going to come in contact with all the people in your workforce that you should. If you have that mentality, what you need to do is say, how do I get the most out of everyone in my workforce? And so that's why I was touching on with Haley, the listening aspect. If people would spend more time listening to the way other people process. So I, for example, I have a former partner that if I worded things a particular way in an email, I know I wouldn't get a response that was meaningful. If I worded it a different way, I would. It took me a little while to figure out the way he processed the information, but once I understood it, mm -hmm. I got it. And it needed crisp number, short paragraphs, and in response to that, I always got a responsive answer. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't true for everyone else. But if you can wire yourself into the way the people who are working with and for you think, then you can get more out of them. And um, this isn't a matter of just accommodating them, which isn't to minimize the need to accommodate people. Right. It's being an effective leader. Right. It, you know, you always want to be able to figure out, and you know, you and I sometimes overuse sports analogies, but a great coach right. figures out what the strengths of his or her players are, and then plays to those strengths. You don't expose the weaknesses. You don't ask somebody who doesn't go to their left very well to keep going to their left in a game. You might in That's, practice right. try to get them to be better going to their left, but in a game, you're not going to force them left. You know, yeah. and and um, you know, you and you design plays that play to their right if that's the way that it goes. I think that not enough lawyers view themselves as a coach. Mm -hmm. They view themselves as you know, the job falls on the people who work for them to correct themselves and right. adapt to me. Right. And <laughs> that's, that's right. That that's right. doesn't work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there are so many creative people out there. And if it is a wider, bigger problem than we've ever understood before, why would you exclude from your workforce so correct. many talented people yeah. just because you can't accommodate and can't figure out how to adapt? Yeah. It's just an old, narrow way of thinking. I appreciate that perspective. And and one of the things Hallie was saying, uh, it really resonated with me, right, is how we deliver feedback. You know, she was saying, oh, it needs to be more specific and this and that. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of, you know, lots of first and second year people that get that assignment and they sit there and stare at the wall because they don't know what the heck to do. So we could probably all be a little bit, you know, more specific. It begs the question, and you talked about old school attitudes. We know as agents of change, and we're trying to change some 
of these things, right? There's a there's a change dynamic, and and you know, Jesse, I I guess clinically, right, from your uh, opinion, or I should say, um, you know, Doctor Walker, because I I do want this to underscore with some you know with some science, address the elephant in the room. Being, I, I'm assuming that being neurodivergent does not mean that you can't function at a high level and a rapid pace and do all the things that big law requires of its lawyers. No, absolutely not. And actually, I think something that I was taught in graduate school and, and that has become very apparent now working with lawyers is there are so many lawyers out there who are neurodivergent. And whether they have a formal diagnosis or not, that is very much the case. And so this is not to, um, yeah, the takeaway I don't think should be, well, maybe this isn't the right field for me. I think there are ways to both compensate and, again, what we've been talking about to like speak to your strengths and to identify those. Um, you know, the one piece that I think as a therapist and as someone who does see value in sort of opening up in in places that feel comfortable, I think we do need to get people to at least share what they're going through with mm. someone. And Haley had mentioned building a support system, and that feels really crucial because people can't help you if they don't know that you're struggling. And while I, I think that may not be in a law firm, let's say, that may not be sort of the managing partner or that might may not be like someone who sort of is maybe like a few notches above you in their role, but that can be a confidant that you find, that can be another attorney, that can be finding a therapist who can you can share some of these things with. Um, because I do think in order to get some of the resources and to kind of hone in on your personal style of learning and and what you need you've got to you got to start somewhere and yeah. and I think part of that is identifying that that you are neurodivergent and that you might need some support in some areas but I don't believe at all that that means you can't overcome that just one thing Brian it's too much of a topic to take on here but maybe we want to have a different top podcast on it which is what role does technology play in both making this more difficult for all lawyers and maybe particularly for lawyers who are neurodivergent um um and and how does um it how can it be used to assist because it can be used for good and bad the mass of information is difficult for all of us and can paralyze us all and the speed with which it can come at you and that people actually expect a response I think can truly freeze people in their tracks. Yeah. At the same time, it can also be incredibly useful. So, you know, that may just be something worth exploring. Yeah, I love I love that, John. Uh, and maybe that is a, a a topic for you know for for another time. Um, I want to I'll just give a quick recap of of a couple of things that I heard, and then Jesse, uh, it sounded like or it looked like you you might have a, a perspective. I, I did I think when I asked you a question. Around this whole concept of, she used the word outing, so I'm going to use I'm going to use that word as uh, as well. I thought it was good. Um, so in terms of in terms of solutions, she uh, talked about uh, the job descriptions, affinity groups, which have to applaud a lot of law firms and corporate legal, well, corporations generally 
having those wellness services. And I won't plug uh, plug this here now, but I will just say, uh, <laughs> Jesse uh, and wellness and uh, Scott and performance coaching. Um, we're, we're trying to, you know, lean into that. Adopting this ADA pledge, um, I think is also something good. And then this environment of safety. She said that it's not the employer's job to out people, but just to or rather um, accommodate. So, you know, I guess I'd have in, in whatever John has, but I'd have two questions maybe as we're as we're wrapping up the the recap. And that is, how do you help? So from both sides of the coin, um, when you're talking to neurodivergent folks, how do you help them think about whether uh, whether and how to share? Um, and then two, how do you coach us, those back to what John was saying, those leaders, right, wherever they are, a uh, company like ours, law firm, uh, big corporation, to be accommodating, um, but still be able to operate in a time-sensitive environment? Yeah, this is this is something I have been thinking about and I don't have like a super clear answer yet, okay. but the one thing I will say and just in the research and sort of firsthand experience I've had um with neurodivergent folks is figuring out your why um in terms of disclosure mm -hmm. and are you disclosing to an employer because you are in need of a specific accommodation that you either know has helped you in the past or that you suspect might help? Um, are you disclosing because there are ways that your neurodiversity may impact your work that you need people to be aware of? So I would say I would first encourage people to just reflect on why are you disclosing? Um, and also, by the way, you can disclose because this is a part of your identity and you just want to share this with others. But I do think the reality is um, businesses, and I think firms very much fall into this, are getting better about offering support. There still is a ways to go. Um, and so I think also kind of being flexible and working with a law firm. So if you've disclosed and, you know, by the American Disabilities Act places, if you, if you have disclosed um, that you uh, have a disability, a diagnosable disability, your employer is um, required to offer an accommodation. Mm -hmm. um, they will work with you to try to find the most appropriate accommodation, but it may not be the best accommodation there is. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think the more education you can also just like have exposure to around what you're needing is really helpful to bring to an employer and share. Like if you are going to disclose, this is what I'm experiencing. These are the three accommodations that would really help me. Like, can we work together to try to see if, if we can implement this or not? Um, That's good. And then on our, or on your end, um, sort of as the employers and also just as people who, you know, have conversations and connections with firms, um, I do think, I mean, I really liked what Haley was saying around looking at disability as a diversity issue mm. um, and not that it has to be exclusively a diversity issue but i actually think if we can start thinking in that way the same ways that firms are trying to make a commitment to adding more people of color and adding people who sort of traditionally have been excluded from their firms we can think about this in terms of neurodivergent folks that these are also people that we want to give more access points to and have inclusion um, with. And so I think um, 
yeah, recognizing if we're making a pledge to diversity, this is very much included in in that category. John, I don't know if you had anything else. I, I so great conversation, Jesse. Thank you for joining us for the for the readout. And I think as uh, as John was saying, maybe we do have a part two that talks about technology broadly, but the implications, uh, John, that you were mentioning. Um, so for you know our audience, thanks for joining us. As, um, if you missed it, Haley Moss, um, she has a book, Great Minds Think Differently: Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. We appreciate uh, joining us. Thank you again to our guest, Haley Moss, for joining us today. That was fantastic. Brian and I thank you all for listening to The Law in Black and White, and we wish everyone a happy National Disability Employment Awareness Month. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you and presenting more interesting conversations to you next time, and be safe in the meantime.